Today we're wrapping up our series that we're calling Finding Love. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about love and about sexuality and about relationships. And we're finding that it has actually a lot to say about that, which is wonderful because this is such an important thing for each one of us. We're created in the image of God, created to experience his love, to know his love, to share his love. Um, So he has a lot to say in the Bible to us about how to find that love. But even though we all desire a love that lasts, the problem is many people have not found it, at least not yet. So today I'd like to, to talk about that a little bit. And, and I think one of the main reasons that we struggle as human beings to find love is actually illustrated in a well-known film uh, that for the first one came out, I think it's 2006, uh, the movie Cars, this Pixar movie. And uh, for those of you who don't know uh, the movie line, I'm about to spoil it for you. Um, anyway, there's, there's this talented rookie car called Lightning McQueen. There he is right up there. And he has this goal in his life to win the prestigious and coveted Piston Cup. That's, that's what he's living for, and, and that, that's what he wants uh, more than anything else, it seems. But along the way, he finds a mentor that helps him to discover that there are more important things than being number one in life. And so the final scene in the movie, there's this tie-breaking race, right, between the three fastest cars. There's McQueen, there's this veteran race car that's nicknamed the King, and it's his last race, and then there's the villainous Chick Hicks. And so the last lap, they're coming around the last lap of this final race, the winner of this race will obtain the Piston Cup. And McQueen is in the lead, Chick Hicks is in the back, and he does something dirty. He knocks the back end of the king's car, and the king tumbles out of the race into the crashes in the infield. McQueen is heading towards the finish line. He is almost crossing the finish line, and then he realizes what has just happened. And at that moment, he does something very unexpected. Instead of crossing the finish line, getting the piston cup, celebrating the victory, he slams on his brakes prior to the finish line, puts it in reverse, and goes back and pushes the king's car through the finish line so he could finish the race. Well, of course, doing that, while he's doing all of this, Chick Hicks comes along, runs through the finish line, and wins the race. And he's celebrating, and, and, and he thinks he has just achieved the, the pinnacle moment in a race car's career. This is everything that he's been looking for and, 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 and striving for. But the fans are actually, you know, here's, here's Chick. He's celebrating, you know, he's doing donuts and stuff, and he's, he's just so happy. But the fans actually are disgusted by him. They're disgusted by his selfishness, by how he won that victory. And so no one joins him in his victory celebration. Instead, they celebrate McQueen as the real winner, even though he didn't win. So though Chick is awarded the trophy, this Piston Cup, which significantly is described as just an empty cup. Very, very significant uh, statement. He completely, he gets the cup, but he completely misses out on the love of the adoring fans and all that he was hoping for. Why? Because of selfish pride. This is what pride does. It keeps us from finding love. It's like a giant wall in our life 
It, it keeps us from finding that which we desire. And as much as we are drawn to unselfish acts like, like that of Lightning McQueen, how he goes back and he, and he helps the veteran finish his last race and gives up first place, as much as we're drawn to these kinds of things, the unfortunate reality is that we're all infected by some version of Chick Hicks. Well, I'll have a little bit of him in us. Naturally, we are self-centered. Instead of looking to give to others in all of our relationships, instead of that being the number one thing on our agenda, we are all prone to looking for what we can take from others and seeing relationships rather as a means to an end. How can we get what we want from those around us, friends, neighbors, loved ones, people in our family? Because of pride, because of selfish pride, we can be surrounded by loving people, and, and even a loving God, can be, we can be surrounded by these influences, yet still miss out on the love that our heart longs to experience. So this morning, I'd like to look at how Jesus heals us, how he heals the sickness of, of selfish pride, how he redeems our relationships so that we can truly find his love. That's really what we're all looking for. Well, the title of the message this morning is Healing Grace, and before we get into the Bible, I'd like to pause for, for prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give us each ears to hear what you are saying to us in the Bible. And I pray that you give us a heart to accept. Lord, to talk about pride is to talk about something that is ingrained in us, and I pray, God, that we would find freedom from this so that we can find your love in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please turn with me to John chapter 13. And we're going to be starting off in verse 1. Uh, while you're going there, I'd just like to observe that if anyone should have found love, it should have been the disciples, right? The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is God in human flesh. That's, that's what the Gospel tells us. John chapter 1. He tells us that the word or Jesus is God. And then later in, in his letter that we call 1 John, it's entitled 1 John in our Bibles, in 1 John 4 verse 8, it tells us that God is love. So literally what John is saying in his writings is that the fountain of eternal love, God himself became a person named Jesus. And the disciples had the opportunity to eat with Jesus. Can you imagine that? sitting across the table from Jesus, to, to travel with Jesus. They felt the encouraging hand of Jesus on their shoulders as they went about doing ministry. They heard the voice of love. And although they spent roughly three and a half years with Jesus, pride kept the love of Jesus from entering into their hearts. They were around it all the time, but it, but it was this... this this problem of pride, the sickness of pride, kept love out while Jesus was demonstrating God's love here on earth. Hey, this is what it looks like. Jesus came to show us that. We find the disciples going about something very different. They were engaged in an ongoing competition about who was the greatest. On one occasion, John's mother goes up to Jesus and makes this request. Lord, grant that my two sons, James and John, be first and second place in your kingdom, at your right hand and at your left hand. Even she was in on it. 
And then when the other disciples heard what she had done, they were indignant, the Bible says. It uses that word. They were indignant. Well, why were they indignant? Because they were selfish. They wanted to be first and second in, in Christ's kingdom. But even though selfish pride kept God's love from entering their hearts. Actually, let me give you one more example. I think this is significant to, to the story here in John 13. So Luke's gospel actually tells us that this ongoing competition as to who was the greatest among the disciples, it didn't fade off after a year or so of being with Jesus. After three and a half years with being with Jesus, it was still raging on among themselves. Luke's gospel tells us that about the time that they celebrated the Passover, about the time of John chapter 13, they were still arguing about who was the greatest. That, that argument was still fresh, and it was still going on in their minds, even as Jesus is approaching the cross. So even though selfish pride had kept them from getting it, from understanding God's love, from allowing God's love to enter into their hearts, it's very interesting how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't give up on them. And that gives me a lot of hope because he doesn't give up on me or on you either when we don't get it, when we're slow to get it. Notice, notice what Jesus does here in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now pay attention to what he does. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As Jesus approaches the agony and the exhaustion of the cross, which he certainly was aware that he was about to experience, instead of pulling back, we find Jesus pushing down on the gas. He loves them to the end. Let's keep in mind, Jesus was moments away from the most important event in earth's history. If Jesus failed to die a perfect death on the cross, we would all be lost. So we we wouldn't blame him if, if he had chosen to kind of pull back and take care of himself a little bit. But instead of doing that, instead of taking it easy prior to the cross, we find Jesus looking for yet another opportunity to show love to his disciples, undeserving though they might be. He's looking for another opportunity. He loves them to the end. Why is this? Because that is what love does. Love doesn't pull back. God's love does not stop because it's unappreciated. If you don't appreciate God's love, guess what? He's going to keep loving you. God's love doesn't stop because it's misunderstood, maybe labeled as manipulative because he needs something from us. No, 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 he doesn't. But he's going to continue to love even though it might be misunderstood. Even if we reject God's love, it does not stop. That's the nature of God's love. It just continues to love. And this is how you can tell if you have found God's love. If your love depends upon getting something back, you haven't found it yet. If you need to have a certain response in order to continue to love other people, you haven't gotten it yet. God still has something better for you if that's where you're at. Early on in my marriage, uh, um, early on in my marriage, I took, I took pride. I was recently, uh, you know, newlywed, and I took pride in being the best husband ever. I don't know if any, any of the husbands out there can relate to this. Um, I wanted to show Rosie that I, she had just got the best thing ever in me, and so I worked really hard to help around the house. I did the laundry. I mean, I folded the clothes. I picked up. I, I washed dishes. I did all these things, but I would get really frustrated with my wife because I felt like I wasn't getting the affirmation I deserved. I, I wasn't getting the standing ovation, 
And not only would she not do that, but sometimes she wouldn't even recognize my efforts. And so I was getting frustrated about this, like even upset. Like here I am doing all these things around the house and, and I'm not getting, not getting some respect, I'm not getting appreciation. And, um, and, and one day, <clears throat> when I called her attention to this injustice, uh, she said to me, you know what? Um, it doesn't really seem like you're doing these things for me, are you? And I had to admit that she's right. I wasn't doing those things as of an act of love for her. I was actually doing these things as of an act of love for me. Sorry, babe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I've had to apologize before, too. I was looking to get something through those actions. I was looking to get affirmation. I was looking to, to, to manipulate the situation so that I would get the outcomes that I wanted. And that's why, you know, I, if you were looking upon this situation, didn't look real closely, you'd be like, wow, Brian, what a loving husband. He's going around doing all these chores, doing all these great things for his wife. I was doing it for myself. I didn't, I, w- I wasn't experiencing God's love. Right? I wasn't, wasn't showing it there. Jesus shows us that love does not act in order to get something back that it wants. Love takes action for the sole purpose, true love, takes action for the sole purpose of giving. That's, that's, the, that's the nature of true love. It, it just gives. In John chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples, he demonstrates this true love. In John chapter 13, Jesus and his, and his disciples, they gathered, as, as the Bible says right here in, in John 13 verse 1, they gathered for the Passover service. And they, would, they gathered in a large furnished room and I can just imagine the, the aroma of the Passover meal just filling the room. It just must have been a wonderful aroma. All the different spices and, and, and smells must have been just so, so amazing there. This, this meal would have sat on a low table, probably about this high off of the floor there in the middle of that room. And around that table would have been pillows where the disciples could, could lean on those pillows and, 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 and be right next to the table, be able to enjoy their food, with their feet facing out away from the table. And so with their feet extended from the table, there was a custom. At a meal like this, it was a custom that a slave would go around and a slave would wash the feet of those people around the table. And although this, this custom was, was frankly very good hygiene for reasons that I think it's not hard to imagine. I mean, they, were, they wore sandals and the streets were dirty. Um, it was good hygiene, but it was a job that no one wanted. In first century Palestine, the task of foot washing was so repulsive that it was reserved for the lowest of slaves. So from a Jewish perspective, they, they saw that this, this task should really only be given to non-Jewish slaves. In fact, it wasn't a requirement for Jewish slaves to do this. They, they did it, but only the non-Jewish slaves, they, they had to do it. They were required to do it. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, according to the Jewish perspective. But on this night, there was no slave present in the room on this Passover meal. Verse 4 tells us that seeing that there was no one present to go around and to perform this repulsive but necessary task, Jesus gets up from the table, the Bible says, and he takes off his outer garments and wraps himself with a towel, with a towel just like the lowest of slaves would have done. 
And the Bible tells us that he takes a basin of water and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. He begins to go around the room washing their feet. I'm sure that this was an awkward, uncomfortable moment for, for the disciples. I mean, here, here he was. Jesus is their Lord and their teacher, rightly so. He is the one that walks on water. He is the one that casts out demons. He is the one that has the right thing to say always at the right time. What is he doing washing the disciples' feet? In John 13, verse 8, you can go there, um, the Bible tells us that the injustice of Jesus' service here was, it was too much for Peter. They, it, it, apparently, the disciples just kind of sat there in silence as Jesus went around the room washing their feet. But the, the, it was just so inappropriate that Peter had to say something. Notice what he says to Jesus. When Jesus comes and, and kneels before him with basin and towel, Verse 8 of, of John chapter 13, Peter says, no. Jesus, Peter tells Jesus, no, you shall never wash my feet. Using the, the strongest negatives available to him in the Greek language, no, never are you going to wash my feet. Peter couldn't stand the thought of his master washing his feet. He was so undeserving. And although people, Peter probably had good intentions for, what, for, for his statement here, his rejection of Jesus' offer reveals the pride that was in his heart because essentially what he was saying is, Jesus, I'm not good enough, so you shouldn't do this for me. And I, I want to control this situation because it just doesn't seem right. Self-focus blinded Peter's eyes to see the real significance of what Jesus was doing. Jesus' act of service was far more, it was far more significant than just merely a kind gesture so that he could have clean feet. But even though, even though Peter rejects Jesus, Jesus is persistent, and if you keep reading in verse 8, you'll see what Jesus says. This is his response to Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it, it is significant that Jesus does not say, unless I wash you, you cannot eat this meal. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, unless I wash you, you won't have good hygiene. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, letting Jesus serve Peter was a matter of life and death. Peter, you cannot know me. You cannot know my love. We cannot be in relationship. I am not your Lord and I am not your Savior unless you are willing to receive my love for you, is what Jesus is saying to him. Peter could preach for Jesus. Peter could pray. Peter could live and work with Jesus. But unless Peter received this loving act of service, he would be lost. Jesus would not be his Lord and Savior. We like the idea of finding lasting love. I think all of us do, right? Oh, finding lasting love. Oh, that's wonderful. But in order to receive this love, we must let someone else be God in our life. In order to receive the love of God, someone else must be God in our life rather than ourselves. We must allow Jesus 
the Lord of heaven and earth, to come into our life and have the number one spot in our life. And that can be scary because when we're no longer in control, what might happen? It can be scary. In verse 10, Jesus makes a sobering observation. I'll put it up on the screen. He says, you are clean, though not every one of you. He went around and he washed every one of their feet. There were, in, there were clean feet in the room now. And Jesus now makes this observation. You are clean, though not every one of you. I would suggest to you that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he did a good job. He washed every one of their feet. He washed all of the dirt off. He, he did a good job. But even though the room was filled with clean feet, Jesus knew there was one that was still holding on to pride in his heart. Judas, he allowed Jesus to wash his feet. He let him touch him, but he loved his agenda more than he loved Jesus. He wasn't going to allow Jesus to be God in his life. He didn't think Jesus was his only hope. For Judas, Jesus was merely a nice accessory to his life. He was a means to an end. He was using Jesus. And for this reason, Judas never experienced the love of God. He never found true love. Everyone can find God's love. You can find God's love. I can find, we all can. I mean, you might be sitting here saying, man, Pastor Brian, I've been a Christian all my life, and I don't know if I've, if I've experienced that. Every one of us can find God's love. We all can. But not everyone will, because to find God's love, it requires that we accept Jesus as our only, as our only hope. We've given up all hope that we can manage our life. We've given up all hope that we have power to change the things that need to be changed in our lives, that we can care for ourselves sufficiently, that we can take care of. When we have given up all hope, only at that point that we've given up all hope in ourselves will we be open to finding the love of God. It's because it's a total surrender. We don't naturally do that. The Bible refers to this experience of total surrender, allowing Jesus completely into our hearts. It calls this experience the new covenant experience. Now, just to talk about it a little bit, in the Old Testament, after Moses came down from Mount Sinai, this famous experience, right, where he receives the tablets of the law, he comes down from Mount Sinai, and he gives the Ten Commandments to the people. The people were excited to get to work. They, they wanted to follow God. They'd seen the, the deliverance in Egypt. They'd seen the parting of the Red Sea, the bread on the ground as they collected it each day. And now they're, they're at Sinai. God had taken care of them. And this is what he says. This is the covenant. These are my laws. And in response to that, let's see. Let me put it up there. In response to that, this is what the people of Israel said. Look at this. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will do everything the Lord has said. I think their intentions were good. I don't fault them for that. But they tried to keep the commandments of God, and they were enthusiastic about it. They had zeal for it. But even before this zeal really was, was even around in their life for more than a couple months, I mean, it's less than two months, we find them failing miserably at this promise. They're bowing before the golden calf. They're, they're worshiping this idol. They failed miserably. This experience where people relied upon themselves to love God and keep his commandments, that is the old covenant. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, 
God sees that that old covenant doesn't work, and so he is going to lay out a new covenant for his people, and he does it here in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting with verse 31. Here, this is what God says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Listen to that last statement. See, the problem with the old covenant was not God. It was not his laws. The problem with the old covenant is that people broke the old covenant. God and his law are good. Those are are good things. God was faithful to Israel. He says, even though I was a husband to them. Look at what it says in verse 33. This is the covenant. Here's the new covenant. It's about to tell us. He's about to tell us. Here's, Here's the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I, listen who does the action. God is the one. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. How is it that God becomes our God? How is it that we find God's love? It's because, not because we go out and we find it. It's because it finds us. He finds us. God writes his law of love upon our hearts and upon our minds. He is the one that does it apart from our help at all. He does it all by himself. The old covenant did not work because people are proud They trusted themselves, and as a result, they broke the old covenant. Selfish pride goes completely against God's character of love as it is revealed in the law. His law tells us how to love God. You put him first. You respect his name. Don't replace him with images in your life. Remember his Sabbath and celebrate his creative power. Celebrate his ability to provide by not working. This is how we love God. It tells us how we love other people. We honor authority. We honor our parents. We honor authority. We respect life by not killing other people. We respect marriage by not committing adultery. We respect the belongings of others by not stealing. We're content with what God gives us, and so we we don't covet. This is how we love other people. The the, the law is an expression of love. This is where we find love. It's, It's in the heart of God as it is revealed in his law. Which, pardon me, which of these commandments can we keep with selfishness in our hearts? If I have selfishness in my heart, I'm not going to put God first. I'm going to put me first. If I have selfishness in my heart, I'm not going to want to honor my parents. I'm going to want to honor me. We can't keep any of these laws with selfishness in our hearts, but we can't get selfishness out of our heart because the more we try, the more self-dependent we are. Thankfully, God has a way to heal us of our sickness of selfishness. And it's through his healing grace by showing love to others. He shows love to us, rather, so that we can show love to others. God gives us this new covenant promise. He writes his law of love on our hearts. He puts it here. He impresses his love upon us. And he does this by giving us a love that is so impressive that if we receive it, we will be changed. On the cross, On the cross, the disciples saw it. As we read about the cross in the Bible, we get to see it. 
on the cross, Jesus gave us everything. He gave us his love in, in the richest of currents that we could even imagine. It, he lavishes his love upon us, and he does it by giving us his blood and his body for our salvation so that we can have life. He just gives that to us because he wants to, not to get anything back. It's because he loves us. And to keep this gift of love fresh in our experience, he invites us to do something very special in remembrance of him. I'd like to invite you to take out, there's a, there should be a cup in front of you. Those who are up in the balcony, I don't know if we have them up there, but there's some extras down here. Maybe the deacons can help pass some, some up there. Um, but there's a cup. It's got some grape juice in it. And on the very top, it has a kind of a cellophane covering, and there's a, there's a wafer of bread up there. So I'm just going to give you a moment to, to find those and, and to pass those out. I want, want you to all have a, a chance to, to be a part of this. The Bible gives us this celebration of love. Jesus gives us these symbols. And I love that these symbols are so common the symbol of grape juice, the symbol of bread. We're around these symbols so much. These are symbolic of his gift of love to us. And he invites us to receive them in a tangible way. Just like, I mean, you receive these, these, these are elements of food. We receive them into our life, and, and so our body assimilates them, and it becomes part of who we are. It's a symbol of what it means to accept Jesus into our hearts. We receive him by faith in these symbols of, of the, the grape juice and of the bread. Hopefully you've had a chance to, to locate those. And I'm going to turn over to a passage of Scripture here as we conclude. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, faithful follower of Jesus, this is what he says to the Christians in his day in Corinth. And he speaks to our hearts today. The Lord Jesus, Paul says, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Go ahead and take out, take out that piece of bread. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you would like to receive this gift of love that Jesus gave to you, if you'd like to renew your commitment to him, I invite you to eat the bread at this time. Paul goes on to say in verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, catch it, is the new covenant in my blood. This represents the life of Christ being written upon our hearts. If you would like that, this is for you. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may now receive the cup. The Bible says, as you eat this bread and as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. This is where true love is found. It's found in Christ. And the only way that it becomes ours is by simply saying, thank you. I choose to receive it. He gives that to you now. And we have this tangible experience together where we by faith receive the law of Christ written on our hearts. He does that for us. I'd like to conclude our service today with a prayer, but a prayer that we all sing together. And I'm fine doing it a cappella, musicians, uh, so um, just invite you to, to sing along with me, and I'll even put the words up on the screen. Please join me. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, out of my heart, out of my heart. Out of my heart, shine out of my heart, Lord Jesus, shine out today, shine out always, shine out of 